the vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and give us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your homes on the heights. And you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof with strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations." As you have done, you will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank in my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin, and will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad and possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Wow. What did you think of that? Thank you, Mike, for reading. I asked Mike because he has this prophetic voice. It's very, very good. Normally, I'd say take your Bibles and turn with me to such and such a place. Um, I could say turn with me to Obadiah, but let's be honest with each other. We don't know where it is. Yeah, so go ahead and open with me to page three of your table of contents. Go down to where it says Obadiah, look to the right, see what page number it is, and turn over there. It's after Amos and before Jonah. It's somewhere in there. We're in a series looking at the minor of prophets. We've spent time in Nahum. And we spent a couple of days in Zephaniah, and today we get to tackle the prophet Obadiah. You've just heard it read out loud, and my guess is that might have been the first time you've heard it. And if it wasn't, you're still thinking the same thing I thought the first three, four, or five times I read it. What in the world did that say? And what in the world do we do with that? How do we make sense of that? On Monday, I spent time reading over this and over it and over it. And then Monday night, I called Tim. Uh, We normally talk on Mondays to start thinking about and praying for the service the coming Sunday. And I was sharing with him my what-in-the-world sentiments. And he had this genius, this beautiful bit of insight. He said, you know, as I read this, it, it almost sounded like God was talking to a couple of brothers. And it's as if God was dealing with sibling rivalry. Genius. Did you see it? Let's see if we can make sense of it. Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 23. You can just listen to this. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Pada Aram, and the sister of Laban from Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. And the Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. She went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. If you remember the story, Jacob, the younger son, came out of the womb grasping Esau's heel. Esau was the older son. Now the story goes that the two boys grew up, and as often a case, little rivalries took place. Listen to what happened once after the older came back from the fields when the younger had some food. Still in Genesis 26. It says, One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling his rights as the firstborn to his brother, Jacob. 
What was Esau's other name? Edom. JJ, you raised your hand. What was it? Edom. Yes. Now, when Jacob and Esau's dad was on his deathbed, and if you remember the story, you remember Jacob, the younger, tricked his dad, stole the brother Esau's uh, birthright by pretending to be his older brother. And that did not end well. Genesis 27. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Of course, we know that Jacob caught wind of this plot. He fled to another country. There he got two wives, got rich, and after years away was returning to his homeland and his brother when he spent an evening wrestling with God. He wrestled God to a draw, and God gave him a new name. What was that name? Israel. Are you guys making some connections here? Israel. The people group called the Israelites were who lived in Judah. Now in Genesis 33, we see Jacob and Esau making up, or making, making up, making amends, right? Making peace with each other. Jacob named Israel, making peace with his brother Esau named Edom. You've got to wonder though if the descendants of these two men ever told the story of their forefathers. And if they did, was there any lasting resentment? Probably so. When Israel, the people, was rescued from Egypt, they needed to pass through the territory of Edom. You see, in Judges chapter 11, you can follow it up on the screen, it says, When the people of Israel arrived at Kadesh on their journey from Egypt after crossing the Red Sea, they sent messengers to the king of Edom, asking for permission to pass through the land. But their request was denied. In Isaiah chapter 11, we get to see the prophet talking about Isaiah and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, combining to to attack Edom. So there was some lasting resentment. Fast forward about 1,100 years from the days of Jacob and Esau to the days of the prophet Obadiah, and we're in our text. Obadiah chapter 1, the second, well, it's all one chapter. So the second half of verse 1 Had it were more more than one chapter, I don't know if Mike would have said yes to reading it. Second half of verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Second half of verse 10, actually that verse begins, God speaking to Edom, Because of your violence done to your brother Jacob, your close relative Israel. Sibling rivalry. I told you for the first many times I read this prophet, it was, I was bewildered as to what it meant, what lens to look through and how it applies to us. You now know the lens that I'm looking through it with. I'm looking through it through the lens of sibling rivalry. Other people may preach and teach this book differently. This is just how it makes sense to me. So here it is. Obadiah is a prophet of God that is talking to Judah about Edom. He's talking to Judah about Edom. Now, you may think, as I did, that, wait, 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 it looks like in here that God is speaking directly to Edom. And it does appear as that, but a couple of highly regarded commentaries helped shape my understanding of this. One of them says, as is generally the case with oracles against foreign nations in the prophetic literature, the form of the oracle is played out in a drama form 
And it's presented as a direct communication from God to the nation concerned, although in fact, Obadiah is not confronting the Edomites face to face. He's delivering the oracle to his own nation. The Holman Bible Commentary says Obadiah was God's servant, God's messenger to deliver an oracle against a foreign nation for Judah to overhear. So God is talking to one brother, one nation, about the other brother, the other nation, about how they've been acting. And Edom has not been acting in a way that makes God smile. So God is speaking through the prophet Obadiah to Judah about Edom and the upcoming judgment that's going to take place. Are you tracking with me? Okay. What were the sins that brought on this upcoming judgment? There's really two big ones in this text. The first is pride. Verses 2 through 4. The Lord says to Edom, or to Judah concerning Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and you make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. Pride. In verse 3, the Hebrew word is zadon. And it literally means arrogance of the heart, a presumptuousness, an, an overconfidence. This is the exact same word that God uses when he's talking about the downfall of Babylon later on. Jeremiah 50, verse 31 and 32, God says to Babylon, See, I am your enemy, you arrogant people, says the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. Your day of reckoning has arrived, the day when I will punish you. O land of arrogance, you will stumble and fall, and no one will raise you up. For I will light a fire in the cities of Babylon that will burn up everything around them. Pride. Arrogance. Now, Edom did have a few things that it could be proud about. One of those was its geography. It wasn't the largest of nations, but it was placed in some high mountains, some rugged mountains, and due to those mountains, it was easily defendable. So apparently, Edom got this big head that nobody could beat it. They got this big head about its invincibility, and we could say that they were proud of their might. Little though they were. That's one thing they could be proud about. They were also proud about their wisdom. How smart they were. But listen to what God says about that. Verse 8. At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. Now, I want you to note that in both situations that led to pride, their, uh, their, their toughness in the mountain fortress and their wisdom, it was not a foreign nation that came in and wreaked havoc. It was God himself. The end of verse 4, God says, I will bring you crashing down. In the end of verse 8, God says, I will destroy everyone with understanding. We know from multiple places that God is not too big a fan of, of pride and arrogance 
Throughout Scripture, he mentions that several times. So Edom is going to take a hit from God for its pride. That's the first sin that is leading to Edom's demise. Now the second is this. Edom partnered up with the enemy. Edom partnered up with the enemy. Verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. Same verse, different translation says, All your allies will turn against you. They will help chase you from your land. They will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you, and you won't even know about it. There's a few things in this verse that we can point out. Allies, as it says, literally means all the men of your covenant. Now this makes us think that Edom had signed uh, mutual uh, protection agreements, uh, contracts, covenants with the surrounding nations. Trusted friends in here literally means men of peace. People you live together with without fighting. The phrase, those who eat your bread, perhaps means those who have been invited to political banquets, celebrations, that maybe they've eaten ceremonial meals together. The scholars that I read think that the Edomites, that these phrases in verse 7 point to the Edomites partnering up with the enemy. And in 586 BC, which is when they believe this book was written, the enemy was Babylon. And Babylon came in and they destroyed Jerusalem. Now this makes verses 10 to 14 even more poignant, poignant, even more heartbreaking. If we think that Edom had partnered up with Babylon. Listen to him starting in verse 10. Because of your violence, the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they were exiling your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. These are pretty bad accusations. Standing aloof and watching, refusing to help, rejoicing in Judah's misfortune, plundering Israel's wealth yourself, and gloating in Israel's destruction and exile. And on top of that, to really emphasize the fact that they had partnered with Babylon, you see verse 14. It says, You should not have stood at the crossroads, killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. Edom, you arrogant, self-confident nation who chose to take the wrong side. 
Keep in mind, this was against someone whose history, whose genealogical tree could be traced back to the same womb. Most of you know I have two sons. As boys are and as boys can be, sometimes they get after each other. Any parents have kids that do that? Oh, yeah, all, all, the, <laughs> all the kids are raising their parents' hands. That's great. When my boys get after each other, the conversation oftentimes goes like this. Guys, you're on the same team. Are you part of the same family? Yes, compete against each other in fun. But when things get heated, remember what family you're from. Okay, if your brother's getting picked on, stand up for him. If your brother gets knocked down, help him up and don't be the one knocking him down. You two will always be brothers. No one can take that away from you. Have I ever said that to you before, JJ? Sound familiar, Sam? Yeah. Sibling rivalry. And I told you this is the lens through which I'm reading this book of Obadiah. Now, as I was studying this, I was picturing myself having a conversation with one son, maybe on the bottom bunk, while the other son's in the top bunk listening. And I was wondering, is that what God's doing in here? As parents, I think most of us have probably done this. And if you haven't, I have. Okay? One, one sibling gets home and realizes the other sibling's in timeout. Or they've had their privileges taken away and they say, Dad, why, why, why? So you're explaining to them, look, you see, I told your brother four times to pick up his mess. And he did not listen to me. So he's lost privileges. I want people, I want my sons listening the first time I say something. Now oftentimes that's how the conversation goes. Now as a parent, secretly I'm hoping that the kid I'm talking to learns that lesson so that they don't have to go through making the same mistake and getting disciplined. That's at least my hope. In our story, in the prophet Obadiah, since we know this is God speaking to Judah about Edom, I can only think that God is hoping that Judah will learn the lessons from Edom's mistakes. Now why do I say that? Because of how the prophecy started. The people of Judah said, we have heard a message. We have heard a report from the Lord. It's as if a God is saying, people of Judah, don't be proud. Be careful who you partner with. Because if you don't, it's not going to be pretty. I mean, listen to what's going to happen to your ancestor Edom. I'm telling you this for a reason, so that you don't make the same mistakes and have the same end result as they do. And what is that end result? Prophet Obadiah is pretty clear. Verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would they not steal only what they had until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? I want to go on a short rabbit trail here. The oh in the middle of that verse Oh, how you would be ruined. In Old Testament literature, an oh like this introduces a cry of wailing and mourning for the dead. 
or for the soon approaching disastrous news. We see this when David composed a funeral song for Solomon and Jonathan after learning of their deaths in battle. 2 Samuel 1.19, Your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Obadiah says, Oh, how you will be ruined. And ruined in the Hebrew means to cease, to be cut off, to be destroyed. Now verse 6 continues, How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Just like the O, this how continues the idea of a funeral dirge, a mournful song. I like how the verses 5 and 6 are read in the New Living. It says, If thieves came at night and robbed you, Oh, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor, but your enemies will completely wipe you out. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. What God is prophesying through Obadiah about Edom to Judah is that Edom, for the sins he has committed, is going to be completely wiped out. Completely. And we see this again and again in this short, this short prophecy. Verse 9. The mightiest warriors of Teman will be terrified. And everyone on the mountain of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. Verse 15 and 16, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. Verse 18, the people of Israel will be a raging fire, and Edom a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be aflame, roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, if God is giving this message, and if He's giving it to Judah to overhear about Edom, you've got you to think God's heart is, child of mine, listen, because I don't want you to be destroyed also. I told you at the beginning that my first two thoughts when I had this text, when I read over it, was, uh, what in the world did that just say? And what are we supposed to do with it? Well, I think we've answered the first question. Now, how do we make sense of this for us today? You know, we could say that this little Old Testament minor prophet tells us a few little lessons. Pride goes before the fall. Turning traitor against your own people, your family included, is always wrong. Attacking people or applauding when people are down and out is also wrong. God could be re-emphasizing the eye for an eye. God punishes people in the same way they have been punished. Now, if any of these are the little lessons you need to take home today, fantastic. Take them home. Let them settle in your heart. These are all great lessons that we could glean from Obadiah. 
Now, I think there's a couple of things in here also. Things that don't point to us, but point to God. What we learn about God from this text is that no matter what is going on around us, no matter how bad things seem to be, whether it's us getting, uh, getting attacked or, or uh, persecuted, whether it's uh, downfall, whatever it is, no matter what the situation is, God is still in charge and God is still on his throne. I already pointed out at the beginning that, that this took place in the end of verse 4 and end of verse 8 regarding Edom and their pride. Now later in this text, after more discussion of Edom's sin and Edom's punishment, we essentially see God saying, look, I am, I have been, and I will be in charge. You see this in the small way of God keeping his promise to the original Jacob, the younger of the two twins. You guys remember the story of Jacob's ladder? He was on his way to the land that he was going Jacob's dream was this, Genesis 28, verse 13. On top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread in all different directions, to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. God was talking about the promised land, and most people would say this promise was fulfilled when Joshua divvied up the land after conquering Canaan, and they'd be right. But then Israel was conquered and exiled again, and in Obadiah, what we see is God promising to redistribute the promised land again. It's a re-promise of the original promised land. Verses 19 to 21. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains. And take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem, exiled in the north, will return home and resettle the towns of the Negev. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. A redistribution. See? God is still in charge. And God is still on his throne. Very last phrase in this prophecy. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And the Lord himself will be king. See? God is still on his throne. Isn't that encouraging? God is in charge and God is on his throne. What a message from this little prophet. And I trust that as God was speaking to his people through the prophet, you have been listening as well. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. And I thank you for the words you have given us. 
God, sometimes it would be easy for us to look upon others who seem to deserve your judgment. And it'd be easy for us to get proud and and smug and, and think, yes, Lord, smite them. But what a message for us today to remember that that's not our role. God, I pray that you would guard us against pride, that you would guard us against arrogance, and that you would remind us regularly that you are in charge, that you are in control, and that you are still on your throne. We thank you that we can learn from a prophet spoken so many years ago. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.